welcome to Happy Trails, the podcast for trail riders. Episode 13, Long Riding with Nevada Discovery Ride. Hi, I'm your host, Jess. I travel full-time with my horses. We explore trails all over the U.S. We love exploring new areas and sharing information about where we've been and who we've met. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll remember that I'm fascinated by the idea of packing into the backcountry. I haven't done any horse packing yet, but I'm learning everything I can to be prepared for when the day comes. In my quest for information on ultralight horse packing, I stumbled onto the Long Riders Guild. It's a worldwide organization designed to support and educate people interested in long riding. And long riding is a specific term for long-distance journeys on horseback. People all over the world participate. Here in the U.S., we have a number of long-distance trails that are horse-friendly. The most notorious is probably the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs from Mexico to Canada. But there are plenty of other long trails, like the Arizona Trail, the Colorado Trail, the Centennial Trail in South Dakota. Most people enjoy these long trails by riding in sections, a day or a week at a time. But a few intrepid souls pack up and head out for weeks to months at a time. My guest today is Samantha Sazorka. She's about to embark on her third long ride. In the following interview, she's going to tell us about her previous rides, things she's learned along the way, and tell us what she's doing to prepare for her next one. I've been following Sam for a few years on social media, but when I called her, I wanted to get to know her a little bit better. So I started out by asking, do you have a business related to your riding or horses at all? Nope. What started as just this personal side project has just grown into um into this passion project and I don't really intend to make it a business it's just this thing that I like to do and I like to share with people so in fact when I give talks I've given talks all over the country and uh and I do those for free (laughs) it's just uh I'm so happy to share my adventures with people and encourage other people to get out and have their own adventures Yeah, that's awesome. So what is your background with horses? I did not grow up riding. I did not come from a a horse family. No one else in my family rides. I somehow mysteriously caught the bug as a as a young child. My mom thought it was a phase, as all mothers hope. Um, and it was not. I begged and pleaded to to take lessons and was able to do that as a teenager. And I rode competitively in college on my college equestrian team. Um, But it was really sporadic. We didn't have horses. I wasn't able to have my own horse. So it was just whatever I could absorb through random lessons and and experiences with others. And so I actually grew up riding English. And then over the years, just sort of found that my true passion or what I wanted to do was, was just be on the trail. I moved to Nevada in 2008 and then was able to finally be in a position to get my own horse. uh, And that's sort of what launched me into this journey that I'm on now. Cool. So tell me more about your Nevada discovery ride. Yeah. So like I said, I moved to Nevada in 2008. I was finally able to get horses. I started trail riding more and more and just finding a lot of Uh, enjoyment in exploring Nevada on horseback. And then around 2010, I read an article about Bernice Endy, who's a very famous long rider who has ridden 20,000 plus miles all over the country. And I had never heard of such a thing 
But her story was just so inspiring to me. And it had never occurred to me that in the modern era, you could still ride like that, that you could keep trail riding. It just had never occurred to me. And so I couldn't get her story out of my head. I started doing more research and I discovered the Long Riders Guild, which is an international association of long riders. And I just started reading and learning. And I thought, I want to do this. I think I could do this. And so I started planning my first ride, which was in 2013. And I rode across Nevada 500 miles from border to border. And then I just came back and decided to, that wasn't enough. And then in 2016, I rode uh, 1,100 miles all the way around northern Nevada, and that was a three-month ride. And now I'm working on my third ride. And what's the plan for the third ride? So my plan for this next ride is uh, another sort of across Nevada ride, but this time I'm going to start in Las Vegas and ride north up to Carson City. So sort of riding along the uh, California-Nevada border uh, through southern Nevada. So I, apparently I'm trying to ride every corner of Nevada. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> apparently. I thought for a while, you know, I, want, I knew I wanted to do a third ride. And I really spent a lot of time researching trails and trying to decide where I wanted to go. And for a while I looked at places outside of Nevada. Uh, but I just love Nevada so much and feel like there's such there's so much more opportunity for me to see things on horseback here. So I'm doing another Nevada ride. So do you do these rides alone or with company? I do. I ride solo. Well, with my dog and horse, so not quite alone. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's just me, a solo rider. And are you doing it assisted? It's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to long ride in Nevada without some type of support, just because the inconsistent feed and water opportunities, which is, of course, most critical. Uh, so I have support in terms of um, pre-planned caches for feed and water, and then what feed and water drops uh, in some places. When you were first contemplating doing a long ride like this, what were the biggest questions in your mind? Well, that first ride, I, I didn't know anything. You know, I read as much as I could from the Long Riders Guild and got advice from from people, but no one had really ridden across Nevada that distance in the in the modern era, of course. There was a lot of unanswered questions. There was a lot of unknowns and uncertainties, and I had a lot to learn. I did a lot of preparation work in advance, but I have to say I learned so much on that ride about what worked and what didn't work, uh, what gear was good and what was not good, and uh, it was a huge learning opportunity. I, I kind of think of that almost as our training ride to, to go on to do the next um, because I had so many things to learn about riding a long distance in Nevada. The desert is, a, is such a unique terrain and it has so many challenges. Yeah, I can only imagine between the, the arid climate and lack of water to rocky passes and absolutely the mountain ranges people don't realize how mountainous Nevada is and how remote and empty a lot of the spaces 
roughly 85% of Nevada is public land. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of space. Um, so it just has a lot of challenges. There's a lot of other long riders out there, but they, you know, you'll typically see people ride the Pacific Crest Trail or the Arizona Trail um, or states up north. And uh, you don't really see people focus on Nevada because of those challenges. So there's a lot to learn. What was one of the biggest things that you took away from your first experience? The first ride was so much more than what I expected or hoped it would be in 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 good and bad ways. It was such a physical and mental challenge to do. There were really difficult moments where I struggled to to find the motivation to keep going, to push through. Uh, there were beautiful things, unexpected surprises and views and encounters with wildlife. It just really was so much more than I could have um, anticipated. I think people think long riding is like this really romantic experience of, of riding off into the sunset and just having this adventure, which it is, but it's also this really personal experience um, and this really uh, amazing, challenging thing to push your body and your mind to do. So I was really surprised to 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 have that experience uh, with the first ride in good ways. It was I learned a lot about myself and my ability to be outside of my comfort zone, and mm-hmm. I learned a lot about my horse. You have to really be a herd of two, so to speak. Um, you really have to learn to trust each other and push each other through those challenging moments because the horse has its own challenging uh, encounters. And so I learned a lot and thank goodness I did. It helped me realize that I could do the next ride, the longer ride. Tell me about your horse. I have an adopted Mustang. His name is Sage. He was born in central Nevada, captured when he was two. And he ended up in a prison program in Carson city, Nevada, where they pair wild horses with inmates for about 100 days of gentling and training. And then they offer them uh, for adoption to the public. And so I was able to get Sage from the prison program. And we did the, he has done both rides with me so far. So he's ridden across Nevada and around Nevada and thousands and thousands of miles in between. (laughs) Um, He's just a really phenomenal trail horse. And he really made me fall in love with Mustangs. And so a, a big part of this project for me was to do these rides to encourage wild horse adoption because that's such a big issue in the country. And uh, Sage has just been a phenomenal ambassador for wild horse adoption. Yeah, I bet he has been. And didn't you just get a new Mustang? I did. So my plan is, of course, to take Sage on this next ride. But I did just adopt another Mustang from the prison. His name is Fremont. And so he's in training now and doing wonderful. And my goal, we'll see how he does. My plan is to leave for the next ride May 1st. And my goal is to be able to take Fremont and Sage and then have one horse to ride and one to pack and then alternate as we go. So ideally, I'd like to take them both. But I'm going to let Fremont pace his training, and we'll see if he's ready. 
So on your previous rides with Sage, have you just been carrying ultralight gear? Yes. Okay. So I love gear. I'm a total gearhead, but I really feel like we're living in this golden era of gear for outdoor sports and the availability of ultralight gear is just amazing. And so, you know, I think people think about packing or traveling on horseback, you know, they think of the old school sort of um, pack, you know, pack trains loaded down with gear and um, which you can't, you know, a lot of people still do and that's fine. But there's just such an availability of lightweight gear now that makes it possible to 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 go with one horse, one person and one dog. Um, So Sage uh, would carry on our previous rides. I was able to ultralight gear, have him kind of light pack and ride one horse. And then because I had support, uh, was able to resupply and have additional gear as needed. What gear exactly were you carrying on you? Well, for this next ride, I will have much less um, regular support. So I'll be carrying a a small ultralight backpacking tent, my cook, you know, ultralight cooking gear, my feed to last a few days, uh, and then, you know, a few days worth of clothes, dog food. That's very minimal. Um, you know, it's the reality is you can only carry so much to out of respect with a horse. So it's pretty, pretty minimal gear, uh, small first aid kit, you know, those sorts of things. And then the way the ride, this next ride is set up, I'll be able to ride to the next point where I will have gear stashed, feed stashed, and then be able to switch over as I go. And what do you do for containment? Containment does depend on the route. The previous rides were very backcountry. I went through no towns. It was very remote. So I used uh, a portable, a small, lightweight, portable electric corral, which is literally just the, you know, plastic stakes and a small battery-powered line of electric tape, which Sage, thankfully, was pretty respectful of. I sometimes was able to use a single hobble on a picket line. And then because it's public lands, there are often old corrals all throughout public lands that are free to use if you find and they're safe to to do so. So uh, some combination of those three, you cannot highline in Nevada for the most part because we don't have the types of trees that are conducive to that. Um, So that's what worked for me. For the next ride, it will be different. I will be riding through towns. And so I've actually have a quite a few places where I've secured lodging in advance where I'll be staying at people's ranches, guest ranches or farms. And uh, so it'll be a little different experience, not as backcountry. That sounds like it's going to be a luxury. <laughs> I know. I, I said I'm not sure I know how to <laughs> handle such convenience. I might get to shower more than twice in three months. That's amazing. Um, having the ability to to have access to those resources is going to be a, a real treat. Um, so it'll be a different kind of ride, but I think will be really wonderful for uh, having the opportunity to meet and talk to amazing people. How much scouting are you doing ahead of time? Very little. I do a lot of work in advance in studying maps and putting together the routes uh, using GPS, using topo maps, 
using Google Street View if I need, uh, any types of resources to put together the routes. And then typically what I do is if there are sections that I still have questions about or feel like I might feel more comfortable seeing, then I will go scout those in advance. But I try not to scout the whole thing because that takes away a, a huge element of the of the surprise of the experience of being out there. So I would stay with the last ride, which was 1,100 miles. I only scouted, oh gosh, maybe 100 miles out of that trail in advance. Wow. And does that end up putting you in difficult situations? Absolutely. Because there's, even with all the prep work that I do, there are still challenges that happen on the fly. So on the last ride, I still got lost. I still got turned around. I still ran into obstacles that I was not expecting and had to reroute on the fly. Um, there are definitely still uh, difficulties that come up. But that's part of the adventure, <laughs> is that every day you don't know. You just think, okay, well, we'll see what we encounter today. It could be a gold mine. It could be, you know, a trail washed away. Could be wild horses. You just never know. Right. You're riding through areas with wild horses and burrows. Definitely. Nevada has more wild horses than any other state. And I think I saw all of them on my runs. Uh, just about every day we were encountering wild horses. So that's a huge element that people don't think about that adds a lot of risk to the trail because wild horses are very territorial and can be aggressive. So a lot of times people will ask me about wild animals and they think, oh, did you get attacked by bears or wolves? And, and I say, no, no, the scariest animals are actually wild horses. I would say just about every day we were charged by stallions on the trail or in camp in the middle of the night. I was chasing them off. Um, it was just like sort of constant wild horse issues. Wow, that sounds very risky. <laughs> you have to really hope your horse stays calm. So eventually, Sage was thankfully pretty, pretty mellow. He realized quickly that I would take care of it and he would just leave it to me to scare them off. Uh, but those stallions can be very persistent and they know from miles away when a strange horse is moving through their territory. So sometimes I thought, oh, we can sneak through and they won't even know we came. But of course, they could smell the horse and they all come running. So there were a few dicey wild horse incidents, but uh, you just sort of get used to it. How did your dog handle that? So for the first two rides I had, uh, my dog, Bella, she was a, uh, just a mixed breed mutt from the shelter. She passed away after the last ride, um, but she was a, a wonderful trail dog. She had no issues with the with being out there, but uh, having a dog makes me feel safer in some ways, unless alone. I, I couldn't imagine doing uh, being on the trail without a dog. So sadly, Bella passed away, but I did get a, another dog last year and she's been trail training as well. So Juniper will be accompanying me on the ride next year. It must add a lot of comfort, like you said, but then there's also the added responsibility. You've got to feed the dog, make sure she's safe. Can you talk about that? 
Yes, there's some added responsibility with the dog, um, you know, and it's not without its risks for everybody to do these kinds of journeys. So the last ride, Bella, you know, chased a, a jackrabbit into a cactus and got a face full of cactus barbs. She had a little injury on one of her pads. I mean, things will happen. Um, that's sort of a risk that comes with this sort of journey. Um, but again, the the safety of the animals is, is first and foremost for me. So I was very prepared and very observant of their condition the whole way. Um, and if and there were a couple of times on the last ride where I thought Bella needed a break. And so when I was able to rendezvous with support, I let Bella take a few days off. Uh, I don't want to push, push them if it's clear that they don't want to go. So um, just very aware when they're of their needs and trying to take it into account in the planning. So that's having appropriate feed and first aid equipment and then just keeping a really close eye on them. How about taking care of yourself? What are yeah? <laughs> the reality is, I think I I was so concerned with the animals that I I definitely failed to do some things for myself. So one big issue that people don't realize is the amount of calories that that the humans burn. You're not riding for ten hours a day. It is a combination of walking and riding. So I and there were often days where I walked more than rode. Uh, where I was just leading stage, depending on the terrain, perhaps it wasn't conducive to riding. So I did a ton of walking. Uh, so you're burning a lot of calories. And I had not uh, planned for that properly. And so when I finished with the last ride, I actually had lost over 20 pounds. Uh, when I came back, when I got done, I was tying my pants up with bailing twine by the end of the ride. Uh, so you know, there's, it's physically very challenging on, on the person. And how about dealing with the weather and the elements? We encounter every kind of weather you can imagine. The last ride, I started it in August and I ended it in October. So we had everything from 100 plus degree temperatures, beating sun, windstorms, rainstorms, dust. Uh, and then by the end, it was snowing. So everything in between. Uh, and the, the weather is probably the most difficult thing to predict, of course, uh, because you often don't know what's coming. And when you're riding in the backcountry and you don't have cell service, you can't really check the forecast. So you just sort of have to have a little bit of gear to be prepared for everything. And then you sort of attempt to learn to read the sky and the clouds and, and see if maybe you can predict something that might be coming in and uh, but the reality is often you just have to keep going because you're out in the middle of nowhere there's nowhere to stop and rest so you just have to push through until you get to a place where you can stop so I remember on the last ride getting caught in a rainstorm a torrential downpour and I was getting soaked through my uh, my rain gear wasn't wasn't good enough and but there was nowhere to stop I had to just go another few miles till I found a little shelter that I could hide under and set up my gear in the rain. Uh, you just, you have to power through those weather incidents. It's, what else can you do? Of all the challenges you encounter between 
getting lost or running into a fence or some obstacle or weather, what is the one that really frustrates you the most? Well, that's a great question. No one, you know, I've done so many interviews. No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> um. That's funny. I mean, for me, it's it's running into an impasse. There's nothing worse than having to backtrack and go around. I, it yes. just absolutely drives me nuts. Turning around, yeah, is like, uh, it's just the worst. Because you're so focused on moving forward, getting your miles in. You know, I tried to average about 20 miles a day. Uh, but when you're trying to accumulate 1,100 miles, you, you really, you're so hyper-focused on moving forward, always forward. And so if you get to a impasse or an unexpected thing and you have to turn around and try to figure out how to reroute and then you're adding miles or in time, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so frustrating. I, yeah, I think that was definitely probably the most frustrating thing. Luckily, it didn't happen often. Uh, there was one section on the last ride. This was, I just get a kick out of this. I, I actually had scouted it in advance and I went and I saw it and it looked fine. And then when I got on the ride, I got there and a giant gold mine had sprung up in between the time I scouted it and, and arrived on horseback. So there was a huge gold mine. It had taken access of the road, the trail that I was going to take, and I couldn't go through. It's so classic Nevada. And so they said, well, it's a gold mine, an active gold mine. We can't let you ride through. I had to add several days to the journey, riding all the way around the perimeter of this gold mine and then trying to get back to the original route. It was frustrating in the moment, funny now to, to think about. So when something like that happens, are you still riding through wilderness or are you on the side of a highway? I try to route as backcountry as possible. So the bulk of the route is on Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service land. Wilderness is an actual designation that doesn't apply to all public land. So I rode through several wilderness designated wilderness areas but not all of it is classified as wilderness it's just public land so i definitely try to stay off of roads as much as possible and i'm using a combination of old uh, bureau of land management forest service roads dirt roads or pack trails but there still were a few pavement areas i had to to cross just to get across um I did have to ride across an interstate, which was a little frightening, uh, but it was just the way I had to go to get to the next uh, public lands area. So uh, it's still backcountry, you know, as remote as possible. This next ride, like I said, I'm going to be weaving in and out of towns this time, which will be fun, uh, but will still be remote uh, BLM land, almost the bulk of it. So on the new ride, are you... Are you going up into the mountains and like crossing back and forth across the range or are you primarily staying on the east side, if I have my geography correct? <laughs> so southern Nevada, the terrain and the topography is, is a lot different than northern Nevada. It's a, it's a completely different desert system, the Mojave. So I'll be starting in really low elevation outside of Las Vegas and staying low outside of the mountains. Uh, going through Death Valley, uh, skirting the corner of Death Valley. Uh, So if you can imagine that kind of terrain, 
And then as I continue north, I'll be sort of skirting the Sierra Nevada, and then I'll start crossing some ranges, some small ranges that are in western Nevada. It's going to be really interesting, different, very different than the other rides, but I'm really excited um, to see new ghost towns and new historical sites and, uh, and, and explore the Mojave because it's just such a beautiful desert system. You said you're starting that in late spring, or early summer? May 1st. Now, I was in Las Vegas on April 30th last year. It's hot. It degrees during the day. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. I'll be honest, if I could start sooner, I would, um, because it will be hot down there. Um, but we're pretty used to that. So what I usually do, that's just desert riding. Uh, what I usually do is I actually will, I'll be up at about 4 a.m., and try to be on the trail, saddled and on the trail by 6 a.m. So that we can start moving out and getting the miles in before the heat of the day. That's really crucial. And so depending on the terrain and how, uh, you know, we're able to pace ourselves, I might be able to be done with the day's miles by the afternoon. In which case, then it's just siesta for the rest of the day. Uh, if not, then we will just take a little midday break and pick it up in the evening when the temps start to cool. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It seems like riding in excessive heat like that or traveling, hiking, you know, whatever you're doing that day, it seems like you would need to carry a lot more water on you in case you encounter a detour. Yeah, water is is the biggest issue for Nevada, but you can only carry so much water. The reality is, you know, especially riding and if you're light packing off one horse, or even even if you have a pack horse, you still can only carry so much water weight. So it's just about being smart, leaving early, pacing yourself, taking breaks, uh, electrolytes, of course, for all the animals. Um, and we'll be going north. And so as we start gaining elevation, the temps will start cooling. Uh, and by the time we get to Carson City, it should be pleasant. When you're scouting out a route, are you also looking for water sources? And how do you know if they're going to be reliable or not? Absolutely. Water's a huge part of planning the route because I'm looking for stock tanks, seasonal creeks, or even year-round water sources. And that's a big part of scouting. And then also just contacting people that know the area better than me if I'm not going to scout it. Uh, because, again, there's there's so much seasonal water sources in Nevada that maybe it's running when I scout it, but it's not going to be running in the fall. So you just never know. Um, it's a combination of, of trying to route yourself along places where you know there's going to be water, carrying enough water for the, the stretches where you that, that might be long stretches. And then that's why you have to have support to some extent to resupply and bring water. Uh, you know, in the summer, on the last ride, when it was 100 degrees, Sage was drinking, you know, 15 gallons of water a day, 20 gallons a day sometimes. I could never have carried that much. So those those sections, it was really crucial that I was able to have someone meet me with a 20-gallon water tank at the end of the day so that I would have water for that evening and morning. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned stock tanks. So mm-hmm. what exactly does that mean? They're, 
are there livestock out on these BLM and public lands? So public lands is all open range, at least in Nevada. So where you have Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service lands, that is public range. There are cattle uh, grazing, not all, always year round, but cattle can be grazed on almost all of it. And so where there are cattle, ranchers will often install stock tanks. And so if you know how to find those and where to look for those, that is a huge lifesaver to encounter on the trail. Uh, because often the, they're hooked up to a spring, uh, a year-round spring, and then the water is piped out of the spring to the stock tank. And so that is just uh, a wonderful thing to find and to know about. It's really critical for me, too. So Sage can drink all he wants, the dog can drink, and then I have my water filtration system so that I can drink. It's just a, it's a huge benefit to riding in Nevada is having all those access to stock tanks. I typically use USGS topo maps when we're mm -hmm. trail riding or looking for places to dispersed camp on public mm -hmm. lands. And I'm always keeping my eyes out for the markers that say spring. Yes. <laughs> but I've discovered that not all of them come to the surface and right. not all of them are piped by the ranchers. So sometimes right. they're there, but you have no access to that water. Yeah, it's definitely... Um... It's definitely a gamble in certain places. Um, you know, I, I use a, obviously topo maps a ton as well. And usually those springs are, are marked. And sometimes you can tell just based on the topography, whether it's going to be a year round spring or a seasonal. Uh, and then sometimes stock tanks are marked on the maps too here. And I, um, you know, I hone in on those and then we'll go out and investigate. And oftentimes I contact ranchers in advance and say, hey, can you tell me about the spring? Is it year-round or is it just seasonal? Do you have it tapped or do you have it turned off? And I've always been really pleased and surprised, I guess, by, by the support that I've gotten from people I've reached out to, like ranchers. They're so willing to, to tell me and help me. So uh, that's been great. Wow, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the most important characteristics that a person should have if they're even considering doing a long ride? To do a long ride, you have to be someone who will take the time to plan properly, to realize what you don't know and be willing to learn so that you can do the journey safely. But I think above all, you once you're on the trail, you just have to have patience because every day is sort of its own adventure of the unknown. And that constant, the constant surprises and challenges that you encounter can really wear on a person. So if you don't have the right constitution, uh, it would be difficult to get through that. And what is it about long riding that keeps you coming back? I think long riding is the most intimate way to get to know a place, to begin to understand the nuances of the terrain and the land as it changes from mile to mile. Because when you're traveling at three miles an hour, you see everything. Uh, I think it's also this incredible experience to have with your horse because you are never more than a few feet away from each other, 24 hours a day, every day, for months. And how often do we get to have that with our horses? 
And so it's just this really incredible experience that I I think it's probably similar to people who do through hikes or get into mountain climbing or uh, climb Mount Everest. It's just this really difficult but empowering experience and way to see the world that most people never will. I think we don't often push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. Most people are very comfortable within our world and um, but there's something really empowering about doing that. And for me, I find that kind of addicting. I just want to keep going and keep pushing and seeing what's out there. That's really cool. It sounds like a really awesome adventure. Thank you so much for talking to me about all of this today. Where can people follow your rides? My website is nevadadiscoveryride.com. And so when I'm on the trail, I will have my tracking device linked to a map on the website so people can literally follow along in real time, which is so fun for people to watch us move on the map, watch us get lost. Um, And I'll be posting updates from the trail to the website as well. And then, of course, we're on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. That is really cool to have a live tracker. It's really fun. You know, on the last ride, there was there was a day where I got lost. I got turned around. And so I was literally riding in circles and backtracking. My mom in Pennsylvania was looking at the website and watching on the map. And she was getting concerned because she could literally see going back and forth. And we had a good laugh about that after. She said, I was watching. I was so worried. I saw you going back and forth. But uh, yeah, so it'll be really neat for people to follow along that way. Cool. Well, I will definitely be watching you. (laughs) Yeah, and I'll be posting updates. I'm really fortunate to have some really great partnerships as well. So I'll be working with Nevada State Parks and the Bureau of Land Management. They're going to be coming out and we'll be posting video updates and photos. And it's going to be a real, real fun adventure. Great. Well, good luck. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with Sam. And I hope that you got a lot of great information from our conversation. I really appreciate how passionate she is about sharing her knowledge and experiences. I'm looking forward to following along on her upcoming adventure. And I'll definitely be talking to her when she's finished with the ride. I'm sure she'll have lots of great stories to share. In the meantime, I'll continue planning and prepping my horses for our first big adventure out. It's not going to be a long ride. Just a few nights in the backcountry. And since I don't have an extra horse to pack... I have to set everything up so that we can go ultralight on our two riding horses. I plan on doing a whole episode about ultralight gear in the future. As always, I invite questions, and I really appreciate your feedback. You can contact me at jess at rideclimb.com or through the Happy Trails podcast Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy trails! The Happy Trails podcast was created and produced by me, Jessica Isbrecht. The show's music was written and performed by Jason Shaw.